0: Welcome to Clockworks, a Legion podcast. I'm Paul Moffat.
1: I'm Jan Moffat.
0: And this is the show where we talk about Legion.
1: We tick-tock about wait, Legion. Wait, I'm pretty sure you've done that one before. It was the first one ever. Oh, that's cute. It's all
0: come round in a big circle. Which is another clock joke.
1: I guess. clocks, clocks go
0: in a circle circles? and the hand. We're doing a wrap up on season two. We're going to spend some time talking about the things that we noticed throughout the whole season. We'll talk about the John Hamm narrations and what we make of all of that when we put it all together in the context of the whole show. We'll talk about some of the motifs that we noticed through the whole season recurring. We'll talk about some of the themes and big ideas that we think this season was all about. We'll talk about the characters and what we think of the character journey of several of the main characters. We'll talk about some of our favorite moments, episodes, musical numbers. We'll talk about our reactions to our predictions and questions from season one. In our season one wrap-up, we made some predictions about what season two would be like. And we're going to look back at that now. And we'll make some predictions for season three. And some remaining unanswered questions that we are left with here at the end of season two.
1: That sounds great to me. All right. Let's get into it. If we have to divide this show into like several thousand more shows, we might have to do that.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Depending on, we're sitting down here, unsure. If this goes on too long, we'll break it up into two or three or four or five episodes, but it might just be one. We will just have to wait and see.
1: All right, so let's get into this. Um, I rewatched all of the John Ham parts, so you don't have to, <laughs> <laughs> or rather, maybe you want to. But so I'm just going to do to start with just like a recap of all of ju- the John Ham narrations, which are not in every episode, but are in most episodes. Um, which, yeah, to to, with lack of a better term, we call them John Ham narrations because that's who narrates them. But do we have a better way of describing them? I I think that's a perfectly fine way of describing them. All right. So we begin in the very first episode on a black screen where he talks about you're inside the maze and welcome to madness. The second time we get at one of these is just a title card, Chapter 2, The Madness of Crowds, which just launches into the episode. Later on that same episode, which is we get chapter three, Delusions, where we hear about Zhuang Zhu, who dreamed he was a butterfly. We we hear about Albert A., who cuts off his leg because he feels like it's not his. And the conclusion is, for a delusion to thrive, other more rational ideas must be destroyed. In the next episode, chapter 10, we get chapter four, Umwelt. Reality is that which when you stop believing in it, it doesn't go away is the whole part with the boy who's taught red and green and we are the only animal on earth who goes mad. The next episode, chapter 11, has part contagion five, which introduces the nocebo effect and what about our reality is disorder. Chapter 12 has uh, no John Ham in that episode. Chapter 13 has the cons- coincidence or conspiracy chapter six then we have chapter 14 with no John Ham again chapter 15 has part 8 moral panic when we have the witches code witches and the comics code and then later on just uh John Ham narrates over top of the actors talking about what have we learned here one delusion leads to another what starts as an egg can become a monster in chapter 16 we talk about the cave. This one does not have any title card whatsoever, but would be part nine. Uh, the, the delusion of the narcissist is they believe that they alone are real. Chapter 17 and 18 have no John Ham narrations at all. And the last episode, chapter 19, has the little clip where they repeat the egg thing from the very first episode, what begins as an egg and then has this series of title cards so it isn't actually a John Ham narration because no one narrates those cards but it feels like the conclusion of this group of things where for what is normal is that which upon nine wise men can agree, men can agree leaving the tenth to swing from the hangman's rope right so that's just the rundown of all the John Ham narrations now we can talk about what all they have in common what exactly what exactly are they trying to say
0: when they're all about uh delusion is what they all have in common, right?
1: Mhm. They're definitely about yeah, delusion and the re- nature of reality.
0: You had um I don't know if you want to put this later, but you had a revelation about the last one that you didn't uh put into our episode about the last
1: Yeah, I can say that now. I was walking, I I listened to our podcast sometimes just to hear what we said to make sure I know for the future (laughs) episodes.
0: That is maybe, I do that too, but is it a sign of solipsistic delusion to spend your life listening to recordings (laughs) of your own voice in your ears?
1: (laughs) I don't always listen to the entire episode and I often listen to it speeded up. So it's not even my own voice. It's my own voice at like two times the speed. Right. Sorry I interrupted. I was listening to myself talk about the end of season of the end of the last episode, chapter nineteen, and I like it clicked on me so hard that I had to run home. I burst into the into the house, <laughs> screaming at Paul, "We are the tenth person. We are the tenth person." And what I mean is, in the last in the scene in the last episode, where David is on trial and he's in the big ball in the middle of the room, and there's nine. People in that room. There's eight people surrounding him and him in the middle. And it talks about when nine wise men could agree, leaving the tenth to hang, dangle from the head man's rope. There's a tenth person in that room, and it is the audience. It is us watching the show. Mm-hmm. We are the tenth person in that room. And I think that's deliberate. I think that this whole John Hamm narrations are all leading up to. We are part of this show. Our madness, our collective, our collective consciousness is part of Legion,
0: and that's why I wanted you to say that before we kind of dug into the John Ham narrations because I think it's kind of an important key for understanding them.
1: Yes, absolutely.
0: We started the very first one in our first episode about. Uh, The narrator is talking to us. Mm -hmm. The narrator is not a character in the sense of a fictional construct talking to another fictional construct. He's talking to us, the audience, about madness. And the title card, Welcome to Madness, or the narration, Welcome to Madness, Mm -hmm. uh, is directed to us. Mm -hmm. So the episode, the season, I mean, is more than just depicting someone else's madness, as season one, we kind of experienced David's madness vicariously. But in season two, we're really invited to experience our own madness. Yes. To uh, think about our own madness or sanity. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the fundamental thing that the narrative voice does is not explain not only right, explain David's experience or Sid's experience or any of the characters in the frame, it kind of does and provides a context and we could talk about what that is. We've kind of mentioned that through the show and Mm -hmm. I don't think it would be bad to recache it a little bit. But I think what really the narrator does that couldn't be done without the narrator is involve us, the viewers, in that. Mm -hmm. And the final piece where there are nine wise people and one crazy person in that room and which one is which
1: (laughs) yeah exactly
0: uh we are invited i mean like the nine wise people are the nine people who agree that david is villainous and the tenth hangs from the hangman group because he's condemned by all the nine including us who are in the room who all agree that he has gone off you know that he's uh become villainous by the end of the show Mm -hmm. um But the narration also says, what if we're, what if the ship of fools is the ship of fools? What if we're the mad ones? And we are encouraged to be part of the show, to be part of considering delusion and madness. And what can we trust of our own uh, judgment and our own sanity?
1: Absolutely. It's definitely an invitation to madness all the way along. And even this is most uh, apparent, to me at least, in that episode where it's this will make you vomit this will make you vomit and they say it over and over and you really feel that physical reaction you're actually physically physically reacting to what is on the screen and maybe not everyone is but i don't doubt that a lot of people feel just a little bit like vomiting when they hear that over and over and this is just part of like this fully interactive experience watching this show is you feel like you're part of this madness and parts of it like having part contagion five yeah makes you f- and and having half of these not have title cards at all makes you go like wait what happened to one what happened to what part are we at what chap it's chapter half the time like it's not clear
0: i was thinking like this is partly about reality and madness and the experience of the real but it's partly a meta commentary on storytelling mhm and i've thought long and hard uh the season finale at chapter 19 uh one of the reviews of it that i read the title of but didn't read the whole review <laughs> was uh said something about this ep- this show has gone beyond brechtian in uh, alienating the audience
1: mhm and
0: that was a bad review hmm and I was like, you realize that Brecht was a visionary in the world of <laughs> theater. Yeah. And that for someone like uh, Noah Hawley, who I know is, you can tell by the references that he makes, that he really is familiar with and admires modernist drama mm-hmm. and existentialist philosophy. And all, uh, comparing him to Brecht, he would not take that as an insult.
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: And there's something about the John Hamm narrations about um for an idea for a delusion to thrive, other more rational ideas must be destroyed. destroyed. I wonder if there's something about the artistic statement of this season that the more conventional narrative uh beats must be destroyed. Mm-hmm. So, in order for this show to be delusional, in order for this show to kind of give you the experience of delusion, of madness, the rash, other more rational t- storytelling approaches need to be destroyed. Like that your protagonist is the hero. Yeah. Like that you know who the show is about. Yeah, absolutely.
1: Right? And even that, like, that there's going to be one of these in every episode. Yeah. No, there isn't. It's in a little more than half the episodes. And I kind of wanted to mention the episodes that it's not in Mm -hmm. are chapter 12, which is the episode that focuses exclusively on Sid and in her mind. Right. Chapter 14, which is the David Multiple Worlds episode.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. Uh, Chapter 17, which focuses a lot on Melanie and then a little bit on Lenny as well. And then chapter 18, which is basically part one of the finale, kind of broken, and it's all the desert parts before. Yeah. So, I feel like that one doesn't quite fit the pattern, but the other ones are when it's focusing on one specific person, when it's their story, we don't get a overarching narration. Hmm. We get it more when we're trying to tell a grander story. Right. And to invite you into this. It isn't about you in those episodes. It's about them.
0: Hmm.
1: You, the audience, I mean.
0: Yeah, yeah. Okay.
1: But I really feel like a lot of it just hinges on that first moment with you are inside the maze. Yep. You've pictured a maze and the the maze itself is in your mind. Welcome to the madness. And that's just like defines the entire season
0: i absolutely agree
1: which does that segue us nicely into the motifs i think it does so mazes are a strong and as well as me not just mazes but liminal spaces
0: what does that mean
1: so by liminal spaces i mean the in-between spaces that moment between waking and sleep that moment, the traveling between things is kind of a liminal space. It's a not quite here and not quite there. And so in Legion, you have literal liminal spaces, which are a lot of hallways. They're all a lot of action in this in Division Three happens in the hallway. So it doesn't, it's not in any specific room, it's in the in between space. Mm-hmm. And then a lot of things happen in dreams but not quite dreams because it's the astral plane sort of and then it's like and then it's also within the maze and mazes and mazes are these like spaces that are in between and you're not quite at a destination and you're not back where you were and you have to be stuck in the this liminal space and
0: it's important mazes can represent a lot of things but the mazes in uh legion are first introduced in that John Ham narration where he makes it really clear. There's a goal in the center.
1: Mm-hmm. There's a beginning
0: and there's a center. Yeah. That kind of maze, if there's a beginning and a center, then the rest of the maze is this liminal in between space.
1: Yeah. Right. Absolutely.
0: Is that not all mazes are necessarily that kind of liminal, but they really establish the maze as an in between space that you're staying in the meantime.
1: And I feel like there's a couple of things we could say about mazes and liminal spaces for the show as a whole, for the season as a whole, Mm -hmm. that I think the season itself is a maze. Yep. The season itself takes you down this path and twists and turns and dead ends. Like I think that the tar weird creature, alien thing.
0: We think he's a brood.
1: Brood, that's what we thought he was maybe, yeah. I think he's a dead end. Yeah. I think you thought that trail led to something, but no, you're just at the end of the maze and you need to turn around and go the other way.
0: I think you're totally right. And if you think of the season as a maze, it makes a lot of the things that people find uh, found frustrating about the season, you might still be frustrated by them, but you see them in a different perspective. Mm -hmm. That What you expect out of a serialized story is a straight line, right? Mm -hmm. And you expect it to go off on maybe on little tangents and then return to the main line. But if this season is a maze, then we're going off in different directions. We're going around in circles. We're ending with dead ends. Something's happening somewhere else that we don't even know about that we then flash, you know, we then see a different perspective on the maze and the, the, I think that is very much a deliberate choice. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: And frankly, it can be a choice that doesn't work for some people. I really appreciate it.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: And it it comes back to this, like the experience of disorientation and madness that you're not, this show is not giving you what you have been taught to expect from a show Mm
1: -hmm.
0: or from a story in general.
1: Yeah. And I'm wondering if even this season as a whole is a liminal space between season one and season three. And we'll find out with season three if that's true.
0: That's exactly where I was going to go next. That yeah. I Like, not just a maze, but a liminal space. If there's three seasons, which there might be ten seasons, but we have said several times that, like, uh, in our interview with Jeff Russo, he said that... He, he was given a storyline for three seasons worth to build musical cues out of. Right. Mm -hmm. So this is an in-between season and we often people uh, devalue the liminal spaces, the Mm -hmm. in-between season. Like, you know, I know people who talk about Lord of the Rings, for example, like the two towers is the one where everything is just waiting and then the plot starts again.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: But The second in a trilogy, or the middle part, where things are developing, there's a real pleasure in that, Mm -hmm. if you allow it to be what it is. Right? Yeah. And stories are made out of a beginning, a middle, and an end. People uh, sometimes, myself included, we sometimes want to skip the middle part. Mm -hmm. Set everything up, then tell us how it ends. But the middle part is where the story really is. Yeah. But it can be also frustrating. It's this liminal space where like, we're not, we don't seem to really be moving forward. And that comes back to the maze. We're coming, going around in circles. We're not sure. Like, are we, are you bringing us somewhere? <laughs> mm-hmm. I think that's my experience with part of this season has been like, where are we going with this?
1: And even the switch that, to kind of bring up another motif, the switch that they made from the background is full of circles to the background is full of hexagons, is now this smooth shape has sides. This smooth thing that we've figured out what this show is about, now suddenly there's corners on it. Now you're turning a corner again and again and again. Yep. To get to the same back to the same place,
0: yeah. And a hexagon really does a lot of the same things as a maze in terms of these corners and dead ends, rather than one single path. Like I said, as st- we expect out of a story, is a straight path. A circle is a straight path. Hmm. Mm-hmm. And if this is the liminal season, the season of in between. That makes me really excited to also for season three though <laughs>
1: mm-hmm. really excited
0: one of the other speaking of liminal spaces, a lot of the landscape of this season takes place in deserts mm. a desert is in its way also a liminal space
1: mm-hmm.
0: especially um metaphorically, yeah, literally. A desert is a real space. Mm -hmm. Like it's not an in-between one place and another. It's an end point. It's a place where there is a rich ecosystem. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But metaphorically, deserts really can, uh, are really rich as a kind of a liminal space where nothing is recognized to grow uh, it feels like nothing lives there. It feels like nothing stops and stays there. Mm-hmm. You pass through the desert on your way to safety on the other side. Mm-hmm. Right.
1: And even in terms of like metaphor, metaphor, people talk about, you know, I'm gone through the desert, but now I'm, you know, I've reached the other side. I've reached exactly. the oasis. I've reached. Yeah.
0: And before the season started there, I forget now who probably Noah Holly someone said in an interview, like there's a reason why season one was in a rainforest and season two is in a desert. Mm-hmm. They moved to film in LA, uh, so that they could be in a desert instead of in the rainforests of BC. Yeah. Temperate rainforest. Um, and a desert is like, yeah, if season one was about growth, cause it's in a, Forest where there's lots of green growingness, and it metaphorically is about David and Sid, especially, but mm-hmm. all the characters kind of growing into something. Season two is about a desert where it seems like nothing is growing. Where a lot of the time, what seemed fertile isn't, what seemed like one thing isn't, and there's a lot of the season where David develops his powers, but emo- like emotionally, is he growing? I'm not. Sh- I don't think he is. He's stagnating more,
1: mm-hmm.
0: right? And we see that by the end of the season. And their relationship, Sid and David's relationship, was really growing in season one. And in season two, the uh, primary landscape is a desert.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. It's a very barren time yeah. in all of their lives. I think especially of like Melanie yeah, for is sure. going through a terrible time. So another thing that we see throughout the season that I just want to draw attention to, I don't have a lot to say about it, but Sid's compass. Mm-hmm. that He gives her this compass in the first episode. And then she uses it once to find him, but she's always wearing it. It's just this ever present thing that, and I feel like there's, it's significant when she wears it and significant when she doesn't wear it. And so the first few, one of the first future SIDs we see, she's wearing it. And then later on, different future SIDs aren't wearing it. And I wonder if that's like a clue to us that this isn't the same SID, that the universe is in flux, that the universe mm-hmm. can be changed.
0: Hmm. Yeah.
1: And I just I have a lot of questions surrounding her compass. Do you have any thoughts about it at all?
0: I think visually it symbolizes their connection mm-hmm, but it's an interesting like a compass is an interesting visual symbol of their connection because it actually doesn't suggest that they have a connection,
1: yeah, just that she can find him
0: that they could have a connection, right? Mm, yeah. The compass is kind of in its way a liminal object. Yeah. You use it to find your way. If you have found your way, you don't need it.
1: Yes, that's so true. Liminal object is a great way of describing it.
0: So at the same time as the compass symbolizes their connection, it also symbolizes their separation. Mm-hmm. And it, uh, as long as she's wearing it, there's a visual marker of one or the other of them being lost. And lost to each other. Mm-hmm. But then there's also this sense of... ...wanting to find each other. Her wanting to find him. And especially future Sid. When we look back at future Sid... ...knowing everything we know by the end... ...and frankly we get a lot of these clues... ...even in our very first... ...or very second... Uh, ...appearance of her.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: But if David is a villain... Uh, ...who's a monster who she's afraid of, she still has the compass. Mm -hmm. And practically that compass in the future might be like a warning system so that they can run away from him. But symbolically it still means her trying to find him.
1: Yeah.
0: Right. In addition to it being a different timeline, it also just symbolically means that no matter how divided they get, she still is seeking him. At the same time as it suggests that no matter how together they are, she hasn't found him yet. Mm -hmm. We have one of the other uh, motifs that comes up through the season. And this is one that I'm not sure how much I have to say about it, but I wanted (laughs) to bring up. is just masks. And this is a... uh, We don't see... I'm trying to think as I talk. I don't think we see literally any. We certainly don't see many literal masks
1: oh well the minotaur is he wearing a mask or is that his head
0: yeah that's my question
1: i th- i thought it was a mask but now when i think about her holding his head that maybe it's his head
0: regardless we don't see a lot of literal masks maybe we don't see any but we do talk about masks a lot and have the idea of masks, and have... So, masks are a motif that this season is interested in. And it's, you know, David starts by saying, Farouk, in the first episode of the season, he's talking to Potonomy, and he's like, you know, I don't even know what Farouk looks like. He wears so many masks. Mm -hmm. And then when he, when Lenny shows up, he's like, are you, you know you tormented me. And she's like, I was just a mask. Mm -hmm. And the shadow King accuses David of wearing a mask, drop the mask. And at the end of the season, when the shadow King is in Melanie, Melanie, shadow Melanie is telling, uh, Sid, like you can see a glimpse of his real face. And then Sid is all, uh, now I see your real face. You hide it so well. And there's this sense of real faces and hidden and masks, right? Hmm. Um.
1: Well, the one you did, we forgot to mention, Fukuyama. Oh yeah. Has a mask. Like he is, his whole head is a mask. So. And the, maybe that's the contra- contradiction there, is we don't never see what the way we do eventually, but like we don't see what's under the math under the basket for so long. But then when we do, it wasn't really hiding anything. Right. It was just it's just basically to keep his head still or whatever.
0: We can speculate, but
1: yeah. Or so, conduct something.
0: <laughs> he seems to use it as a screen, but I think that we're getting a little off topic. Mm-hmm. Because I think he totally is important for the, you're right, for the motif of masks that we have this primary character whose face we never see and even like maybe this is stretching a little bit but the vermilions with their mustaches are a kind of a mask too.
1: Mm-hmm. yeah
0: um and what does all of that add up to like this show is this season is very interested in masks and masks are important uh symbolically for the season because they're about hidden faces a truth that's hidden Mm -hmm. And it's different from, like, we could talk about someone showing different faces. We could talk about someone showing different sides of themselves. But the symbolism of masks is not the same as the symbolism of different faces. Because it suggests there's a truth underneath that is being concealed.
1: And that will eventually be revealed.
0: Right. And then we kind of see with Fukuyama that that's misguided mm-hmm. or at least his face is eventually revealed, but once it's revealed, it's uh anticlimactic.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And there's a question surrounding both David and the shadow King are the two characters who get the most mask talk. And the question that all the mask talk encourages you to wonder is, is there a real face?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Because mask as symbolism suggests, yes, there's a real face. Eventually you'll pull away the mask. You'll see what's true underneath. Absolutely. I'm not sure that that is. Yeah. I'm not sure that, that, uh, well, definitely, I, I'll definitely say, I don't think that in real life people are like that. <laughs> I don't think in real life, Uh, Someone who behaves differently in one circumstance and another is wearing a mask in that sense. Like people are complex and nuanced and they can be actually genuine while still being self-contradictory. Yeah. So in the show, is Sid ends the episode, Sid ends the season having concluded that David's true face is evil and that his kind face was a mask.
1: I think it's more complicated than that.
0: I want to say it's more complicated than that.
1: Mm-hmm. I and- think the I think the reveal of Fukuyama being not really anything under his mask was a reveal that masks don't actually matter. Right. So moving on from masks to other things in. In these episodes, you wanted to talk a bit about eggs?
0: Yeah, this is another one that, like, just because it is an image that comes up through the whole season. Mm. And I'm bringing it up without knowing beforehand what I want to say about it. Just that I want to say something.
1: Well, an idea begins like any other whatever, like an egg. Like, it's this idea of birth. Mm -hmm. And we talked about that in one of the episodes that coming out of this tunnel was a metaphor for birth. And eggs are definitely this metaphor for birth and new life and beginnings. Yep. And this whole season has been about this birth of madness, of delusion, of something different. And the egg, I think, represents and symbolizes all of those things. Mm Mm-hmm. And the delicacy of it; hmm. they can crack so easily. Yeah, and then and you have uh, Farouk's uh, coffin looking like an egg. Mm-hmm.
0: In terms of like what's important textually, what the narrator tells us is important about an egg is that on the outside you can't tell what's inside.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Right, an egg is perfectly formed. Frankly, an egg is extremely aesthetically pleasing as an object. Yes. Uh, And then, but there's something inside and you don't know what. And I was thinking about like the symbolism of kind of potential of turning into something, growing. Like we could say an egg is about like there's this whole future creature locked up inside.
1: It's another liminal object.
0: It is. It is. We could say I was going to say we could say the same thing about like a seed. Mm. But we don't have any seed metaphor in this whole season. No. We have eggs.
1: We have eggs. Eggs are living.
0: Yeah. Seeds are sort of living? Yeah, that's true. I just like I'm trying to without knowing where I'm going with it, I'm trying to pick <laughs> apart like what is does an egg do for us that a seed wouldn't because we don't want seeds, we want eggs.
1: hmm I think an egg has a living, breathing creature inside of it. Yep. Whereas uh, a seed does not. A seed has potential. Mm-hmm. But a seed can do all sorts of things. Whereas an egg does one thing. It births a creature. Right. It hatches a creature, I suppose. And what does Farouk's egg coffin do? It hatches a creature.
0: And I like what you said about delicacy of the shell, too. hmm That's something that I don't think you get from a seed. And we already have the uh, metaphor in our language of a bad egg. hmm We have a metaphor in our language of bad seed, too, I guess.
1: Yeah. <laughs> 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 Whoops.
0: Anyway, we don't have to belabor it. I mm. just wanted to bring it up and... and pick at that image a little bit mm-hmm. uh, also another image that we have quite a bit of in this season are is caves there are a lot of caves mm-hmm. in this season what's up with all the caves
1: once again a birth metaphor i think so. sometimes sometimes literally Right. A lot of, actually, a lot of the times, literally. No, only one time, literally. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I'm forgetting what the word literally means.
0: Yeah, but often very uh, clearly, mm-hmm. very emphatically. Yeah. Right? Like the cave that you're talking about that's literally a birth metaphor is when we're in Sid's head and she starts off in a cave and then she, or that's an igloo. Mm-hmm. But it's a cave. Yeah. Yeah. Um, in terms of imagery, that functions as a cave. Mm-hmm. And for, I'm, I'm calling uh, the hut that David and Sid are in in the desert is also. The ter- tent? The tent, I mean. It also kind of functions as a cave. I, I think. suppose, yeah. In terms of the imagery, we have yeah. like this dark uh, cave. Um, caves are Yonic symbols.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, and like eggs, they're about um, birth and potential and particularly feminine. mm mm-hmm. And you're in the cave. And like we talk about one of the central moments of the season in terms of caves is Plato's cave, the allegory of the cave, And the allegory of the cave is an aspect of the allegory of the cave that we don't usually talk about is just that it is a cave that it's like this dark hole that you crawl out of into the light where you experience the real world. Mm -hmm. Um, That's birth imagery.
1: Yeah.
0: And that's important. Like, I don't know if Plato, I would not presume to make any claim about what Plato was doing deliberately or not deliberately, but it's uh, useful to understanding the, allegory mm-hmm. that, like, you go from this uh, infantile state or this uh, um, embryonic state into real birth, into the real world. You come out of the cave into the light, mm-hmm. right? And that's another thing that this whole season is doing, is, like, we're coming out of someplace safe. Mm-hmm. Caves aren't necessarily liminal, but cave doors are. And doorways are. Yes. And we're really spending time in the tunnels of the cave and Mm -hmm. out the cave door and going the camera through the cave door. And maybe that's why I want to call the tent that they're in a cave, because we're really looking through the doorway into it. Mm -hmm. And in terms of like the visual experience, there's a real mirroring of how they film us going into caves.
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. There's a lot of visual callbacks over and over again and one of them is yeah this going in and out of spaces like that
0: yeah so one last uh image or motif that i wanted to focus on is we spent in season one we spent an awful lot of time talking about wardrobe and clothes and what people wore
1: we have barely talked about that at all this season it hasn't been nearly as obvious this season to me
0: there's one aspect of wardrobe that has been very conspicuous this season, I think. And it's David's pants.
1: <laughs> his, his little short pants? He's
0: He wears pant, He wears short pants. Like, you can see his ankles. They're not long enough for him. <laughs> right? I mean, yeah, those, those are fashionable. People wear those kind of pants. Yeah, okay. When I say they're not long enough for him, but they're visually remarkable. Yes. And people remark on them. Right? Like... There's someone that we follow, that follows us and we follow on Twitter whose uh, Twitter name is David Holler's Pajama Pants. Yep. Right. Because the pants are memorable mm-hmm. and distinctive. I think they symbolize um, that he doesn't, I mean, I think that they, despite being actually fashionable and when I say like they don't fit him they actually are the right size for him. Like, it's not like the wardrobe department picked the wrong size. Uh, and people in the real world wear pants that are that length on purpose. But the visual effect is that he's wearing pants that don't fit him. Mm-hmm. He's the wrong size for what he's trying to be. He doesn't fit in how, and this is the, these are clothes that Division 3 have given him. Remember, he shows up and Sid says, there's clothes for you. And he puts them on and there's the pants that he wears for the rest of the season. So the Division Three is trying to dress him up. Sid is trying to dress him up in something that doesn't fit him. Mm -hmm. There's also a sense of him being unprepared. Him being unequal to the task that's before him. Because he's, I mean, like he's not wearing what he needs to be he's not totally uh fully dressed mm-hmm. because his ankles are bare mhm and it's a subtle like it's it's a subtle amount of not dressed mhm but it's there in his visual uh the visual language of his wardrobe says this is a person who is not a- adequately attired who is not a- adequately prepared who is trying to fit into something he doesn't really fit into who isn't who people think he is, doesn't fit, isn't the size, the shape, the person that the people around him, the people who are dressing him, including himself, think he is. There's a lot of visual symbols of he isn't who you think he is Mm -hmm. in those pants.
1: He's also just like, he's gotten too big for his britches.
0: Yeah, that too.
1: He's gotten... He's too big.
0: He's too big. He's
1: overreaching. He's over who knows what.
0: And the Shadow King keeps telling him, like, don't sit at the kitty table. But we might use that different language for that same attitude. Might be like, put on your big boy pants, David. Right?
1: Yep, exactly.
0: He is not wearing his big boy
1: pants. Nope. Any other motifs you want to mention before we move on that about
0: covers the ones i specifically wanted to talk about yeah i'm sure there are more that if you our listeners noticed some uh image that came up again and again like we could keep talk keep up, up the conversation on twitter we'd be happy to those are the ones that stood out to me
1: Mhm.
0: so you want to move on to some of the themes we may recover some of the same ground what I think of as, like, when we're talking motifs, we're talking images or uh, objects that come up again and again that have some kind of meaning we can uh, pull apart. Mm-hmm. When I'm talking about themes, I'm saying meanings that are represented in different images of different kinds, right? So it's yeah. kind of the same conversation backwards. Yeah. One of the major themes, I think, of this season is uh, madness. Mm-hmm. We've been touching on this already. What is this season telling us about madness?
1: I feel like it's telling us something different than the first season. I agree. Because this season is more... David doesn't believe he's mad anymore. Mm. And it took me a while to kind of catch on to that in this season. That he thinks he's sane. He thinks he's sane with powers. But... He's clearly not. And he's got these voices in his head that are talking, and he's just kind of going along with it, and he doesn't... And so, we have a different kind of madness from David where he's not acknowledging it. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, we have an invitation to madness for us as the audience to say, well, maybe you're not as sane as you think you are.
0: And that also, like... That was present in season one, but it's a lot more overt in season two.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: And again, in season one, David was textually, like, worried that maybe he really was crazy after all. Yeah. And everyone was always reassuring him, no, 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 no. Yeah. You're definitely not. And we have that inversed, especially by the end of the season. He has come very solidly to the perspective that he is saying and all the people around him are like, wait, wait, our bad.
1: (laughs) Yeah, exactly.
0: (laughs) Which is, which is partly a narrative movement, but it's also like in terms of theme, it really is emphasizing the uh, instability of madness as an idea. Hmm. And the show textually does by the end of the season by like, how do you know that the ship of fools wasn't the ship of that we're not the ship of fools? What's mad is what not ni- or what's uh real is what nine wise men can agree on. The show ends by kind of saying madness is just social outlying. Uh which is a little bit what Sid said to David back in Clockworks in season one. Um Right. Yeah. Absolutely. Like Einstein and Picasso were also outliers, but by doing this in, across the two seasons, the show is really making an implicit argument that uh, madness is not objectively the case.
1: Hmm.
0: Right. Yeah. It's contingent. It's up for interpretation whether something is mad or sane or not is up for interpretation is a matter of consensus rather than a matter of objective reality, Mm -hmm. which brings me kind of to a second theme that I think it makes sense to discuss right alongside madness. And that's the major theme of season one, I think was reality. And here we're talking reality again, but from a different perspective. And the relationship between reality and madness are is very intertwined in this season.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I think what season one, I think one way of, that I think of it to myself is that season one was about ontology, and season two is about epistemology. By which you mean ontology is the philosophical study of what is. Hmm. Uh, so reality, what is actually is that's ontology epistemology is the philosophical study of what is known. So if season one was about what in fact is, what is the reality? And so a lot of what we saw in season one was stuff that didn't seem like it could be real, but turned out, yes, this is real. Mm -hmm. Stuff that seemed uh, symbolic and then turned out to be literal. In season two, we're much more concerned with how can you know that what you're seeing is real? what the reality is, yeah, okay, we like that's secondary for the concern of this season, which is but how do you know that it's real, and that's why we're concerned with the kid who's taught wrong and thinks red is green, and that's why we're like the that isn't about uh reality is un unsteady that's about knowledge is unsteady mm. and that's why we have the story of Zhang Zhu is not the standard st- version of that story of a chinese monk who dreams he's a flo- uh, butterfly i said this when the episode aired but i'll say it again in the standard read of that story that's a story about reality about the monk never knows what's true because reality is contingent. Mm -hmm. As it's told in this show, the monk is a monk. It's a delusion. He doesn't know whether he's a monk or a butterfly, but that's because he's delusional. Mm -hmm. The show never suggests that he might actually be a butterfly. Yeah. Even though that's the core of the uh, story as it's usually told, Mm -hmm. (laughs) is that he might actually be a butterfly. There's no way for anyone to know. But the show isn't this season anyway is much more concerned with what's known than with what is mm-hmm. and that is connected to madness it's the the sense of um being unable to reliably know what's real is what madness is for this show, right absolutely, absolutely. That's what this show means when it says madness. Mm-hmm. And that comes to both our experience of the show and the characters' experience of the show by the end of the season. do We, we don't know, either as characters within the show or as viewers, like, really anything mm-hmm. by the end of the show. Yeah. Is David now the villain and Sid now the hero?
1: Are they all somehow under Farouk's spell? Because Farouk is just there, unchained and fine.
0: Yeah, not really. So is that somehow.
1: Yeah. Including not just fine, like unbruised. Yeah. So is he somehow manipulating all of them to manipulate David in this way? Is this all his master plan?
0: Or is he uh, another. Like there are multiple Davids. Is Farouk, who was a part of David, now a uh, alternate personality of David?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Is he real and present in the same way that the alternate Davids were? And the actual body of Emil Farouk is either still in his cage or like dead.
1: Mm-hmm. That's an interesting thought.
0: And the point is that we don't know. And can't, right? Yeah, exactly. And it's that, unab- that uh, unreliability of the narrative that is exactly what makes the show Brechtian. That is what's meant by Brechtian. You're showing us this uh, play for Brecht, but this TV show that alienates the viewers so that we don't know how to interpret what we're seeing. The experience of alienating the viewers is an experience of making them question what is known and what is knowable. That's what this season is very interested in from beginning to end.
1: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So, what other themes did we want to talk about overall?
0: The season, I think, uh, like the first season, is also very much about love. Mm-hmm. Particularly about uh, David and Sade's love.
1: Or lack thereof.
0: Or lack thereof. The nature of... I mean, and Melanie and uh, Oliver's love is the parallel yes. throughout this season. Mm-hmm. And the, it feels like one of the thematic thesis statements for this show was the one in the episode that's in Sid's mind where she says, love isn't going to save us, it's what we have to save. Yeah. And the show keeps coming back and again, and again and again to that statement for the rest of the season. And I don't know when the season is over. I don't know how we want to now interpret that. Because just because Sid says it doesn't mean it's true.
1: Also, David told if his delusion is that he is a good person, he deserves love. Then is like love is what we have to save. But David cannot be saved because he doesn't actually deserve love. Or does he?
0: Is love a matter of dessert?
1: Yeah. Desert?
0: (laughs) (laughs) I said this in our episode about chapter 19, but I don't think that, like, I think that that is a category error. Mm -hmm. I think that putting those two things together is a philosophical mistake. Yeah. And people don't deserve love because they're good. Yeah. And they don't not deserve love because they're bad. That's just not how love works. Mm-hmm. or desert <laughs> uh, Or goodness <laughs> Or value. Anyway, um,
1: So does David, but does David turning evil or whatever he does by the end, make uh, him not have saved love? If the love question, was what they had to save?
0: It's the question that when Sid says, like, love is what we have to save, but I'm not sure that's what he's doing anymore. What does it practically look like to save love rather than to count on love to save you? Mm-hmm. In terms of, like, your actual actions, what is the difference between those two things?
1: I'm not sure. I feel like it's too... To save love, they need to do evil things. Sometimes they need to kill people. But Actually then she seems goes like against it's what
0: she's saying at that time.
1: Yeah, but then when it comes down to it, she is uh, disagreeing with herself. That she doesn't think the, think the ends justify the means.
0: Because the interpretation, the easy interpretation of what it means that love will save us is if we ignore the Shadow King and just spend time together, everything will be fine. Right? hmm And so, Sid's lesson of love isn't what saves us, it's what we have to save, would seem like it reserve- reverses that and says, go off and defeat the evil guy so that when you're all done, we will have each other. hmm Which then David tries to do, but it's wrong. It turns out not to be what she wants, Or it turns out not to be correct. Mm -hmm. She was wrong by saying that. Or he's misinterpreting what that would actually mean. When she goes off to find him in the desert, she still thinks, loves what we have to say, but I'm not sure that's what he's doing. Which means that he, she thinks he has misinterpreted her. Right? Yeah. Because he still thinks he is doing that. So, what would it mean that love is what we have to save? Is it about motives rather than uh, act- than actions? Hmm. So, if David was doing all the same things, but, but... his
1: intention was to love.
0: His intention was to love rather than to get his vengeance. He's telling himself that he's doing this to save love, but he actually is doing this because he really wants Farouk to suffer.
1: Hmm. Right.
0: So it's not, in fact, the actions that are the problem, but the motivation behind them.
1: Yeah. And that's why he's in the end, or just before the end, he's upset with himself because he's happy about hurting Farouk. Yeah. And everyone's upset about that. I don't think in the end he's going to save love or love's going to save him. No. I don't think we're headed in that direction at all.
0: No, neither do I. And in terms of the love theme, I said that Melanie and Oliver are the obvious uh, counterpoint or contrast or parallel <laughs> to Melanie and to uh, Sid and David. What does that mean for their ending? Because it kind of seems like for Melanie and Oliver, love did save them mm-hmm. for certain definitions of save. Yeah. Right?
1: Yeah. I was really surprised by the end that that was what happened to Melanie and Oliver, because I really felt like she had given up on him. But in reality, she was loving him all along. Mm-hmm. And she wanted him all along, even though she was mad the entire time.
0: And it was her love for him is what Farouk was able to manipulate. hmm But it also is what ended up allowing them both to survive. Yeah. the end, right? For certain is definitions that, of survive. For for certain definitions <laughs> of survive. Is that how we want to read that ending? Maybe. Like, we'll find out in season three, I guess. Yeah. There's a lot... uh, Another major theme of this season is the idea of trauma. Mm Mm-hmm. And that's connected in some ways for David particularly, that's connected to uh, the madness theme. It's part of why he... ...relates to reality the way that he does is because of his trauma. Yeah. But throughout the whole season, like... ...I should maybe just lay out what I mean when I say the trauma theme. But for David, we come back and back to the idea of, like, the things that Farouk did to him since he was a kid. Things were done to him. He was... That's trauma. Something Mm -hmm. in his past that has continues to have an effect on him now. Yeah. Then we spend all this time with Sid... And we see a lot of terrible things that she has suffered and survived. And that's trauma. Mm-hmm. And The reaction to trauma is different from David's. She says it's about surviving and the things that we have survived and that's what makes us strong. But that's a reaction to trauma. That's an, a way of interpreting trauma. Mm-hmm. Clark literally has trauma on his face all the time.
1: Yes, and is clearly suffering,
0: and the show is really n- not wanting us to forget that. Mm-hmm. And Fukuyama also is kind of as a character defined by past trauma. Our first, one of the first things we know about Fukuyama is, uh, you know, when we were a boy, they put us in the, in the, and now we're the machine that bleeds, and the pain was like lightning or whatever he says, mm-hmm. right. And there is a sense by the end of the season that Fukuyama, like, the pain has not stopped. Uh, he still is in pain. Yeah. Potonomy has major trauma when he dies. Yeah. Uh, and then exists in Fukuyama's mind. And, like, this is also a kind of loss of self, of not just death, but trauma.
1: I mean, Oliver. Had the trauma of living in the ice cube for 30 years and now has the trauma of living with the Shadow King in his head.
0: And Melanie has the trauma of Oliver coming back and then leaving. And Mm -hmm. Melanie's whole, like until we find out that the Shadow King is manipulating her, it is still very easy to read all of what Melanie does in this season as being the result of trauma. Yeah. And even after we know that the Shadow King is into, is manipulating her, I said that it's her love for Oliver is what allows the Shadow King to manipulate her. But an equally correct, uh, an equally plausible reading is that it's her trauma.
1: Hmm.
0: Right? And then maybe the most dramatic example is uh, Lenny and Amy. Yes. That Lenny in Amy's body... Is like a uh embodied trauma.
1: Mm-hmm. That
0: she is Amy tortured until she becomes someone else. Is like literally what happened to her, right? Yeah. And that's about the idea that uh pain, both physical and psychological, pain transforms you.
1: Which and, is uh, And it, violating someone's body is some of the worst kind of trauma
0: Mm -hmm. i was just gonna say if there's a uh matchbook definition of what trauma is we could maybe do worse than pain transforms you Mm -hmm. that's what we mean when we say trauma yeah right and the episode that's all in david's head is in its way an exploration of the idea of trauma and the idea of an effects of trauma.
1: Because mm. you see the different paths that right. all the different kinds of trauma can lead to.
0: Exactly. What, about, what does all of that kind of lead to? Is this season saying anything about trauma or is it just dramati- dramatizing a lot of kinds of trauma?
1: I think it's dealing with the after effects, Mm -hmm. almost like PTSD, Mm -hmm. and what happens after you go through something traumatic, and whether that's things that have happened, you know, last year on Legion, or, you know, in their childhoods, there is this strong sense of dealing with those past dramatic things that have happened to them. Mm Mm-hmm and whether they can cope or not cope. And I think pretty much all of them cannot cope. Maybe Clark is coping best.
0: (laughs) Maybe he is.
1: But I think the rest of them are just straight up not coping.
0: Yeah. There's an interesting, in a real sense, you said PTSD, uh, the PT is post-traumatic. Yeah, exactly. Um, Well, post-trauma is a liminal space. Yeah. Trauma is a thing that happens. Post-trauma isn't a thing. It's a thing that's after a thing. Yeah. Right? By definition. Which doesn't mean a person who has PTSD isn't liminal entirely, but the PT aspect of that is you're after something. Yeah. And maybe there's going to be an end point where you're not pt anymore or Mm -hmm. something else but pt is you're in this in-between space and if this is an episode about post-trauma about dealing with trauma recovering from trauma or trying to or failing to that comes back once again to this sense of liminality through the Mm. season Mm -hmm. absolutely we're very through the season as we were through last season we're very interested in the idea of good and evil
1: Mm -hmm. and of what comes in between them yeah like the David is very interested in and Farouk is very interested in like hero or villain you're one or the other but we yes. t- and this binary thing and we have binary moments in the season where we have things written in binary all over the walls but we also know that it's not binary yeah and we know that it's not just this one or the other thing
0: absolutely And I think one of the central things this season is doing with the idea of good and evil is exactly that, complicating uh, the easy understanding of those as a light switch. Mm -hmm. And by making your hero the villain by the end of the season, you're exploring this idea of is that even possible in the sense of can someone go from being good to being evil? Uh, I think the show is trying to say no. Mm -hmm. Neither Farouk nor David nor Sid are either good or evil. Even Farouk isn't evil. uh, Because even Farouk is more complicated than that. Mm -hmm. Even though Farouk does evil.
1: Yeah, and he definitely has moments of like talking about having sympathy for your... For your victim or for your for the villain. Mm-hmm. And David doesn't want to hear that, but that does make him sympathetic. For sure. It makes David unsympathetic. So one last thing that's looming over the entire season is this this threat of the Shadow King. And what did it mean in the first season and what does it mean in this season? Because it's a very different thing this season. Hmm. It's much more physical, much more concrete. Hmm. In season one, the Shadow King was more this like metaphysical representation of mental illness. But season two, he comes in as this more physical, external antagonist. And so we have much more of a traditional superhero interaction here. But we also have... Uh, just a different way of looking at a threat.
0: That's interesting. If the Shadow King in season one was essentially an internal threat, uh, and in season two, he's essentially an external threat. Mm -hmm. In one sense, you would expect that to simplify the lines of conflict and the good and evil nature. Because as you said, like, well now he's outside of david now he's the super villain and david is the superhero and one of them's good and the other's evil and they fight until one of them is dead or in jail or whatever but when you allow a little more complexity in fact making Farouk external complicates instead of simplifies the lines of conflict and the moral uh status of each of them because farouk becomes a fully fleshed person instead of just an aspect of david Mm -hmm. and a fully fleshed person can do all kinds of evil things but are nuanced and complex they just all are Mm -hmm. and that also makes david At the same time as we might expect it to be, now he's the superhero who can go around doing good. What the actual effect is, now he's a complete human who has to take responsibility for his moral failings. Yes. Right? Mm Mm-hmm. Neither David nor the audience is really
1: prepared for that.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. That, do you have any other major themes that you were hoping to
1: talk about? I think that's pretty much it.
0: So let's call this the end of part one of our season wrap up. Um, Next week we will have part two of our season wrap up. And on that we will talk about all the characters and what we think has happened to each of them throughout the season. We'll talk about favorite moments and our predictions unless that goes too long. And there's a part three.
1: (laughs) I doubt it. It's probably that'll be shorter than this.
0: If you didn't get a chance to, and have thoughts about the season that you want to share or insights that you'd like us to hear you can send those to us on twitter at clockworkscast you can send them by email to clockworkscast at gmail.com
1: if you're listening to this on patreon you can comment below this episode in the comments section and you can also find us on reddit and facebook using the links in the show notes
0: If you like what it is we do here, you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash clockworkscast. And if you want to leave us a rating and a review, that would be absolutely fantastic, and we would be grateful for it. Until next week, I've been Paul Moffat.
1: I've been Jan Moffat.
0: Goodbye.